Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick Series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Peter Kramer. Mr. Kramer is the author of the BFI film classic volume on 2001, A Space Odyssey. To start out with, can you tell me your own introduction to to Mr. Kubrick, um, your own personal experience with his films? Well, yes, I guess it's one of those life-changing experiences that I write about in my book with regards to the uh, fans of uh, 2001, the initial audience. And I saw the film 10 years later because I was too young, in some ways, too young to see it uh, in 1969, but I saw it 10 years later. And uh, I, uh, it was the first film I think I ever went to the cinema to twice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd never been to the cinema twice for the same film. Um, and uh, I was a teenager, and uh, I had been a science fiction fan all my life, really. And uh, it was uh, an experience of uh, great impact. I had the Arthur C. Clarke novel because I'd been reading science fiction novels for a long time. And I was going back and forth between the film and the novel, as it were. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was puzzled by the film, read the explanations in the novel, but didn't find them quite as satisfactory as I thought they might be. Then I went back to the film, uh, and I think this interplay was quite important for me. Uh, and round about the same time, I also saw actually uh, Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was the first film I ever wrote about, uh, because we were allowed in school to write about uh, films as well as literature. As part of my uh, German class, because I grew up in Germany, uh, we were allowed to uh, reflect or cr- critique films as well as novels or other kinds of literary texts. And uh, so the first uh, piece of writing I ever did on film was on Clockwork Orange. I mean, it was mostly about the novel, I have to admit, mm-hmm. but it was strongly informed by watching the film. So this was my start, as it were, as a, as a writer about film. Mm. And, and you're writing a book right now on Clockwork Orange, aren't you? Yes, uh, I had planned, as soon as I started thinking about 2001, it became clear to me that uh, in some ways 2001 is part of a, a science fiction trilogy, as it were, films that extrapolate from the present to predict development or envision development in the near future. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's what Dr. Strangelove does in some ways, and that's what uh, Clockwork Orange does in, in many ways. Uh, with Dr. Strangelove, it's the immediate future. Uh, with uh, um, a, a Clockwork Orange, it might be 10 years ahead, and we know with uh, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, it, it was uh, you know 23 years ahead. But this idea that these films uh, try to speculate or try to predict in some ways what's going to happen in the, in the near future, that's something that intrigued me right from the get-go when I started thinking about writing about 2001. Mm-hmm. And since the original experience with 2001 was also my original experience with uh, Clockwork Orange, I mean, they happened roughly at the same time. They similarly had uh, a great impact on me. I thought it was natural to follow up the book on 2001 with One on Clockwork Orange and also, of course, to, to do research on, on Dr. Strangelove, which I have used a little bit in the, in the 2001 book, but that's going to be the third book 
if if everything goes okay, the third book in my trilogy of books about Kubrick's science fiction trilogy will be uh, Doctor Strangelove. It is interesting too how his films do. I'm, I'm not sure if comment on each other is, is a correct term to use, but they do all fit. I mean, they're they're variations on a theme, and they seem to continue. If you take all of Kubrick's work, in some ways you can see them as one long continuing story. Uh, starting with well, Strange Love, Strange Love, the world ends in nuclear nuclear annihilation, and then 2001 it begins again. <laughs> you know, the, the beginning of mankind. Uh, I mean, do you find these parallels between Kubrick's works? Absolutely, and I'm always baffled when people say that Kubrick, you know, made. Uh, you know, Kubrick never stick to the same genre. Kubrick did something new all the time. Well, he didn't. <laughs> he made several war movies. He made two urban crime dramas or noir thrillers. Kubrick was in some ways actually quite consistent. He also made several films about marriage or family life. Mm -hmm. You know, see, in actual fact, he returns to the same themes again and again. And he actually sticks quite closely sometimes to particular uh, I wouldn't call it a formula, but a particular way of looking at things, uh, a particular type of film. He does actually not so much repeat himself, but he extends things mm -hmm. he's done before. So that, that seems to be very clear. And uh, war is, is certainly one thing that's running through right from Fear and Desire all the way to Full Metal Jacket, for example. Uh, and there are more precise references that you can see. I mean, a lot of people have pointed out that the beginning of... Uh, uh, Clockwork Orange is a, is a huge close-up of someone directly staring at the camera, and of course that's the ending of 2001. Mm. So a lot of people have been tempted to say that obviously there must be some connection here. The star child is in this very ambiguous position at the end of 2001. A lot of people, as I try to explain in my book, have, have really seen it as, as a moment of of hope, but a lot of other people, especially critics and especially academic critics, have seen it almost as a, as a threat at the end. Mm. So the question is, what what does the Star Child do next? Um, and uh, that's of course what Clark asks at the end of the novel. Yeah, uh, more or less directly, he says, you know, uh, he will think of something, but we don't know what it is. And uh, this question, of course, is also the beginning of the novel, The Clockwork Orange, which starts with, what's it going to be then? A uh, a question that Alex and his droogs ask themselves about how they're going to spend the evening. Uh, Kubik dropped that line from the film, but he, he, he keeps that close-up. So yeah. we have the close-up at the beginning of Clockwork Orange echoing the close-up at the end uh, of uh, 2001. And in both cases, someone is staring directly at, at the camera and therefore at the audience. So it's a real challenge at the end uh, of 2001 and at the beginning of Clockwork Orange. And there are many more connections you can make. I mean, I'm, I've been concentrating on the connections between Dr. Strangelove 2001 and Clockwork Orange, but you're absolutely right that you could make similarly, you could make lots of connections between the other Kubrick films. And uh, sometimes it's quite eerie. Sometimes it's quite eerie yeah. how certain things recur 20, 25 years later. Uh -huh. uh, and it almost, he's responding to something he's done before uh, and maybe changes it or elaborates it in some way. Yeah. You know, there's there's so much to so much ground to cover with with Kubrick. But uh, one interesting aspect of his work is how he how he adapts the the novels that his films are based on. How uh, what what he chooses to include, exclude. Uh, but 2001 is a unique 
experience in his career because this this was a novel, a collaboration with Arthur C. Clarke that was taking place at the same time the film was coming together. Could you give me a sense of the the origins of this project and his collaboration with with Clarke? Uh, I mean, can I just tell you, hot off the press, I'd just been in the archives a couple of weeks ago, and I found out that Kubrick's original plan for Dr. Strangelove was to get an author of a novel to write a new story. Hmm. Peter Bryant, or Peter George, he operated under two names, who wrote a a thriller called Red Alert, which also was published under the, the title Two Hours to Doom, was hired by Kubrick not to adapt his novel Red Alert, but he was hired by Kubrick to write a new novel huh. along similar lines, but fresh a fresh story. And only after several months did Kubrick decide uh, that he didn't want to do that, but he wanted to return to the novel that Peter Bryant or Peter George was famous for, namely Red Alert, except he wanted to give it a comical twist. Yeah, so the yeah. curious thing is, what Kubrick did with Clark, he'd already planned to do for Dr. Strangelove. He huh. wanted to get an author to, to, who had written a novel he was impressed by to write a new story that they would develop together, and then that story would be the basis of a screenplay and of a new novel that would be published in conjunction with the film. Hmm. So he already had that idea for Dr. Strangelove, but then he abandoned it and went back to the idea of adapting the novel Red Alert by Peter Bryan, uh, except he gave it a comic twist. So I think... This idea he then returned to when he came to this project that was about extraterrestrials and contact with them and the impact that would have and space travel. And the usual story that I I do think is is correct is that he he was close to Roger Karras, um, who was doing the publicity for Dr. Strangelove um, for Columbia, and uh, Roger Carras, in turn, was friends with Arthur C. Clarke. So when Kubrick was revealing to Roger Carras, who, who he had become friendly with, that he was now working on this space travel extraterrestrial contact story, uh, Carras said, well, why don't you write to the best man in the field? My mm. friend Arthur C. Clarke was living in Sri Lanka at the time, uh, and that's what Kubrick did. But as I said, I-, I was surprised to find that he had a similar idea already uh, beforehand for Dr. Strangelove. And in actual fact, if you go back all the way to the beginning of his career, he had a, a habit of working with people who he saw as writers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not people who were screenwriters, but people he saw as writers. Now, in this particular case, with Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss, uh, it was an unpublished writer uh, whose name just escapes me at the moment. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? Uh, I've been thinking about this for years, and right now <laughs> I forgot the name. The guy who wrote The Great White Hope, what's his name? Oh, oh. Uh, oh. Uh, anyway, it'll, it'll come back to me, maybe. In, in any case, so when he was working on Fear and Desire and later on Killer's Kiss, he had someone who was a poet and later dramatist and generally a writer, but not. I think he might have been unpublished or certainly not widely published. And Kubik had this habit of sitting down with a writer to develop a story. Uh, and so I'm not surprised that, that he, with uh, 2001, was quite happy to approach uh, an established science fiction writer, someone who was seen as one of the, the, the titans in, in the field, mm-hmm. you know, next to Asimov and Heinlein, 
Flag was was meant to be the great science fiction writer uh, in the in uh, United States and Britain, and uh, there's a whole tradition to that that Kubrick had always worked with with people on developing his stories, and even when he adapted a novel, he often worked with the novelist himself or with another novelist uh-huh. rather than with an established scriptwriter. Something very curious that Kubrick always said he's he's not a writer. He said he needs a professional writer to work with, but at the same time, he didn't want to have screenwriters necessarily. Right. He very rarely worked with well-established scriptwriters. He rather pre- he preferred to to work with uh, with uh, non-professional scriptwriters, but but who were writers, who were writing novels or other things, and uh, and that in a sense was most intense, I would say, with 2001, the collaboration. Because it go, went on for four, four years, basically, uh, Clark was still writing stuff for Kubrick uh, just a couple of months before the film's released. A lot of that stuff which wasn't used, uh, a lot of voiceover and extra dialogue that Kubrick then decided to drop altogether. Uh, but nevertheless, there was a four-year uh, relationship between uh, Clark and Kubrick in which they constantly developed stories, wrote and rewrote uh, uh, the screenplay, so certainly was the most intense relationship I think that Kubrick ever had with another writer on a on a single project. Right. Although he he did actually work with Jim Thompson on several projects, uh, some of it which were not produced. So he he did actually have a familiarity with working with other writers over you know several years probably, uh, and to really get into the. This, I think the idea behind it is that Kubrick saw himself as having certain strengths, but he also felt that he maybe had certain weaknesses, and he felt that bringing a, right, a writer on board would help him overcome whatever those weaknesses might have been. Mm-hmm. And he certainly liked to exchange ideas. I think that's very important that Kubrick was not someone, in my view, who made up his mind on his own and then relentlessly carried out his vision. I think he, he was very much interested in the t- dynamic, interactive process where he wanted to bounce off ideas of other people, but also he wanted to, in a sense, get ideas from other people. And that was during the writing process, but also during the shooting process. Yeah. my And I think that the the writer that you were talking about, Howard Sackler, is that who you were? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and my understanding is is that, I mean, you can see in his in his work, that Kubrick exhausts every possible idea when he's exploring a subject. Absolutely. And that I suppose that that tactic uh uh meshed well with 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 Clark's uh enthusiasm and 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 intellect regarding this project. I mean that is really when you read this Clark actually documented a lot of it in his own publication. So Clark didn't just write the novel, he wrote various other things, mm-hmm. individual book chapters, but also a whole book uh, the Lost World of 2001, where, where Clark documents his collaboration with Kubrick. And I spend a lot of time in the archive uh, looking at the, the, the drafts that they were working on, some of which are reprinted in Clark's book. And it is extraordinary. You're absolutely right. There is a sense in which Kubrick, even uh, wherever he can, he tries to explore uh, all kinds of approaches to a particular topic. He, he does extensive research, but he also tries out, as you say, particular ways of formulating a story, of telling the story, 
uh, of injecting certain themes into a story. He does that even when he is uh, adopting an, adapting a novel which already seems to be fully fledged. You know, even then, uh, he seems to be quite willing to to go away from the novel and and explore other ways of doing uh, the same story. Um, and of course, that also ties in with how he shoots. At least, you know, from the point onwards where he can afford to take a lot of time, and where which probably is, is Lolita. Uh, um, he has a lot of time probably uh, and control from Lolita onwards. Spartacus, we know that was problematic. That was a problematic shoot mm-hmm. uh, because he was hired by Kirk Douglas, the producer. Uh, and before um, Spartacus, his status in the industry wasn't very high because I mean he had a lot of renown, a lot of fame, and everything, but he'd never produced a film that made money before Spartacus. So and and we know that Spike on Paths of Glory, he had to change change he and, and the writers had to change the, the source novel to make it into an appropriate star vehicle for Kurt Douglas mm-hmm. in order to get United Artists to fund the production of Paths of Glory. So I would say from Lolita onwards, Kubik is in a position where he has enormous status in the industry because of the success of Spartacus. He has therefore enormous money and time to spend on the set and at that point, he can start, I think, exploring things on the set in much more depth than he could before. But you're absolutely right. Where he he has he has the time to 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 invest energy uh, and, and and effort into the scriptwriting process, he does something similar. Yeah. So both during the scriptwriting process and during the shoot, he's absolutely willing to explore different approaches rather than making up his mind in advance and then, you know, carrying out a preconceived vision. That doesn't seem to be his approach at all. And certainly the same is true for post-production, never more dramatically than in in 2001, where in the last few months before the film is released, he completely revised what the project was, uh, you know, in a very, very exciting way. So uh, at all levels, uh, script development, production, post-production, Kubrick is always willing to throw out the rule book, to throw out everything he's done up to this point, and to come up with something completely new. Yeah. You know, and that's what surprises me. When, when people talk about the, the ultra-controlling Kubrick, uh, I, I don't see him that way because his films um they they happen he he kind of he finds his film in the process even individual scenes i've heard from actors that uh, that have worked with him that i've spoken to for the series he comes in with no preconceived notions necessarily and he wants your input what would you do in this situation and they exhaust every possibility and so they build a scene there that that's the opposite of that ultra-controlling dictator that, that a lot of people viewed Kubrick I mean, as. I'm, I'm very glad you're saying that, because it seems to me that is, is the essence. And you find, I did a lot of, uh, looked at a lot of press clippings from the 50s. And Kubrick is very interesting in the 50s when he talks about his work. Because, of course, after Clockwork Orange, he becomes very cagey, except for, you know, the long interview with Michel Simon, for example. But uh, after... Uh, talk about Orange, he's, he's quite cagey, I think, in, in, in the way he talks about his work. In the 50s, he's trying out all kinds of ideas when he presents himself to the press. And one of the key ideas that he brings into play is to say, um, I am not interested in cinematography as such. You know, I'm not planning, I'm not storyboarding, I'm not planning how I shoot. Mm-hmm. I have been a professional photographer. 
Mm-hmm. I can shoot in my sleep. That is not the problem. I have to create something before the camera that is worth shooting in the first place. So he was. that's why he was quite interested in developing uh, scripts over quite a long time when he had the time. Of course, you know, you have to have money and time to, to, to invest in the development of scripts. But he was quite willing to, to, to invest in that development to try out things in order to make sure that he had a basis when he went on the set. Mm-hmm. But on the set, he still was willing to have all kinds of things happen that would go well beyond the script, but would make it interesting for him to shoot it. And he never had any doubt that once he had something he wanted to shoot, he would find a good way of shooting it. That's something, in a sense, that was so second nature to him, that's something he almost didn't worry about, according to his own statements in the 50s. I think he says similar things later in his life as well. That's quite a curious, because people always think Kubrick is mostly interested in the visuals, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in a sense, the characters and the story are almost secondary, that he's only interested in how good it looks at the end. Um, but Kubrick's working method it seems to be the exact opposite. Yeah. He's totally interested in the story, the characters, the performance, uh, what, what opportunities might arise from a particular location or a particular set, the surprises that might happen. Uh, he's totally interested in that. He's totally interested in what kind of emotional resonance it might have, what kind of thematic resonance it might have. And he's not concerned about how he's going to shoot it. Because he, he seemed to say that comes natural to him. Right. He has no problems with that. Uh, so I'm always quite intrigued by that. I'm also quite intrigued by the fact that someone, I think Eyes Wide Shut is the most extreme example, someone who, who would work with someone else on the script for years, would then really be able to disregard the script. Mm. That's a curious one. Because you think if someone really, really works on the script, you think they put so much effort into it. Now they want to stick to it, but not Kubrick. I think for him, as you suggested earlier, working on the script was exploring all possibilities and then coming up with something that seemed for the time being the best uh, um, effort. But he was quite willing, once he had done all that, to start all over again when he when he started shooting, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's very surprising. The more one reads about and thinks about and hears about how he works, it really goes against a lot of the prejudices that uh, people seem to have about his work. It really does. I mean, when when a filmmaker reaches the kind of mythic status of a Kubrick, uh, I mean, people, you know, the, you don't know what to believe. Would <laughs> would you hear different? Yes. Uh, Different rumors about his his style of working and such. I mean, his, his he is almost as ambiguous as his films are. Uh, so, it, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, but that's partly. See, that's quite strange because uh, I think in in a lot of his statements with the press, and as I said, they were extraordinarily extensive until and up to and including Clockwork Orange. He was talking constantly to the press. And I think, and also when you read the interviews with, with Michel Simon, which are actually fantastic interviews, and I think he's quite clear. I think he's actually quite clear and straightforward. Hmm. Um, it's the the wish on the part of critics, maybe some fans as well, and academics to create something else. In in a sense, Kubrick is is too transparent in the way he talks about his work. Um, he does actually say, I'm not going to give answers in my films, I want to raise questions. Right. Now, that's a perfect explanation of a lot of what's going on in his film, but somehow uh, that's not enough. Somehow people want to project something onto him which goes beyond a simple statement like that. 
Now, I'm not saying this is the only statement that explains what Kubrick is doing, but I do think that in a lot of his interviews, he comes across as extremely sensible, extremely straightforward, extremely clear, straight, uh, and I'm quite impressed by that. Yeah. And I'm always surprised how people have to turn that into something else, how, how people have to say, well, we can't accept that. It can't be that straightforward. There must, <laughs> there must mean something else. There must be something else going on. Uh, and also, the other tension I always see is um, my my view of Kubrick is, uh, my view of, of, of Hollywood is that there's no tension between art and commerce. And my view of Kubrick is that there's no tension between art and commerce. I see him uh, as someone who, right from the get-go, was addressing the largest possible audience. Mm-hmm. Don't forget that when he was a star photographer at Look magazine, he actually reached, with his pictures, tens of millions of people uh, across a month or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the readership of the, the, the sales of this, this magazine and the readership and the people who might look at it casually uh, at, uh, at, uh, at the news agents or at, at the dentist or whatever, was tens of millions of people. And his first two films, the, the two short films, uh, Day of the Fight and uh, Flying Padre, were made for general release uh, by RKO into cinemas as shorts before the feature film. Mm-hmm. Again, potentially seeing, reaching tens of millions of people. Now, he then had a bit of a, a, a trouble to actually replicate this kind of reach with his feature films. But I'm convinced that he always wanted to reach the widest possible audience. And certainly he did from Spartacus up to and including Clockwork Orange. And there's no contradiction between reaching the widest possible audience and being a supreme artist. But that's something that critics of Kubrick and even some of the fans can't accept. They always have to make him into some rebel, some, some subversive, some avant-garde artist who is somehow at odds with Hollywood and mainstream audiences. Uh, and if you just look at the commercial track record of his films, from Spartacus up to and including Clockwork Orange, he was one of the most consistently successful filmmakers in Hollywood in that period. Mm-hmm. Uh, before, he was reaching for, for success, but couldn't reach it with his feature films between Fear and Desire and Paths of Glory. Afterwards, he was still reaching for the largest possible audience, but missed it with uh, Barry Lyndon and Eyes Wide Shut. But arguably had uh, reasonable success with uh, Shining and Full Metal Jacket. So he is a totally mainstream filmmaker who wants to reach the largest possible audience, who also says extraordinary things about the responsibility he feels towards the people who give him the money. He's painfully aware that this is not his money that he's spending and that he has the responsibility to make sure that whoever gives him the money will earn it back at the box office. Mm -hmm. So all of this, I think, is at, in no way at odds with him being uh, uh, an extraordinary artist. I don't think there's a contradiction. But unfortunately, a lot of people think there's a contradiction and therefore forget how successful Kubrick was as a filmmaker with mainstream audiences and want to turn him in, into something else. So those are my two big uh, concerns about Kubrick criticism. Uh, on the one hand, that they don't take what he literally says about his work Seriously, they somehow think there's something else going on. And secondly, that they don't take him seriously as a mainstream filmmaker, but somehow have to turn him into something which I think he wasn't. Yeah, and and we're hearing that a lot, that he is he is a commercial uh, art film director. That, that, that A lot of people have, have made that statement. He, he, was, mm. he was very much able to 
to uh, to make successful films without sacrificing or certainly not dumbing down <laughs> his his a- approach. Um, and in 2001, I mean, 2001 survives not only because of the the visceral experience of the film and, and, and the visionary aspect of it. I mean, we without 2001, would we would we have a Star Wars? Would we have all these other films that changed the cinematic landscape? Um, but also because it, it is a film of uh, primarily of ideas and questions that that never never leave us. Uh, they're universal. And I'm curious to know from you what you think some of these themes are in, in 2001 that he's exploring. I mean, in, in my book, I, I, it struck me that one aspect of the thematic motivation behind making this film is absent from the film itself. <laughs> you know, that Kubrick actually embarked on this project to counter the, the pessimism, not only of the film, of The Strange Love, but of his own belief. His own conviction was that humanity was unlikely to survive the next two or three decades. Mm. He, he, was, he made that statement in various interviews, and my sense is that 2001 is a response to this. If you're convinced that humanity will destroy itself on Earth, you have to look away from Earth to something non-human to, to come up with an alternative future. Now, for some people, that would have been God in the heavens. It would have been a religious thing. For Kubrick, it was something more scientific, uh, namely extraterrestrials, um, that might, through their presence or through their discovery, through their interference, prevent humanity from self-destroying. Um, so that, that was the, the motivation behind the film. But because he made these radical decisions towards the end of the production process to take out all the, the voiceover and all this dialogue, that would have explained a lot about uh, humanity, at what point, humanity is in, in the year 2000 and 2001 and how it is so close to self-destruction and how the intervention by the uh, extraterrestrials will help humanity to survive. All of this was taken out of the film. So that's quite curious for me. But interestingly, the sense of hope survives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that that this, this hopeful response that Kubrick wanted to project after the ending of Dr. Strangelove when a doomsday device destroys all life on the planet on the surface. Uh, of the planet Earth, the hope that he wanted to project against this uh, nuclear uh, uh, vision uh, survives remarkably well, not in academic criticism. That is, again, curious. Academic critics are convinced that the ending, and the whole film is pessimistic, that Mm. it somehow tells us something about how humanity is dehumanizing itself. You know, they always the phrase that the most uh, rounded character in the film is, is, is Hal, you know, a machine is more human than the humans, and somehow that is supposed to mean that uh, humanity is, 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 in a sense, deadening itself. It, it is, it, you know, it, it so, its soul gets destroyed. Uh, allegedly, uh, that's what's happening in the film, according to a lot of academic critics. And therefore, the ending itself uh, is not seen to be, by, by and large, by academic critics as being hopeful. But audiences at the time thought the ending was immensely hopeful. And I think the sense of hope the sense of rebirth, the sense of opportunity is still there in the film. And that, for me, is the most important one. But at the same time, of course, because the monoliths are not explained as being objects created by extraterrestrials, there's no scientific explanation given in the film. Right. Uh, there's certainly a spiritual or religious dimension as well. It's certainly 
And that was there at the time when the film came out. People writing to letters often talked about uh, um, the film as being not only about God, but in a sense almost a revelation of God's presence in the world or in human history. Um, so that was certainly present at the time when the film was released and the letters demonstrate that people did respond to the film in those ways. But you didn't have to be religious. You couldn't be more broadly speaking spiritual about it. That there's a sense that that humanity is part of higher power, that there are higher powers in the universe and that humanity will eventually develop some relationship to those higher powers and that, that we should show humility in relation to those higher powers and that we should uh, also have some hope towards what we might gain from these higher powers. So I think the the ending works in particular as a projection of hope, which works both in terms of uh, a more scientific approach, perhaps, mm-hmm. literally the belief in extraterrestrial life and contact with extraterrestrial life at some point in humanity's future, but also in a spiritual or even religious way. The ending, I think, uh, has an ongoing relevance for how we see uh, the function of cinema and the place of humanity in the universe. And for me, that is quite crucial because I think today uh, we are more uh, than ever at, at, a, at a sort of turning point. You know, for Kubik, the turning point was the Cuban Missile Crisis. For him, that was the point at which humanity almost self-destructed and, and he made a film which, 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 which played the, out that scenario from the Cuban Missile Crisis from October 62 the the, uh, the the film director plays out that scenario, and he needs to counter that, and he comes up with this this beautiful and and, and moving vision uh, of the Star Child at the end, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and this mysterious vision of the monolith who facilitates the birth of the, of the Star Child. But I think today we're, we're more than ever in need of something similar, because arguably uh, what happens you know in Cancun about in, in the negotiations about uh, action to be taken against global uh, climate change, uh, or what happened last year in in Copenhagen, the failure of the negotiations, arguably the moment at which humanity has to decide which way it's going is there again. Uh, And once again, I think we need a vision of the future, which is hopeful, rather than defeatist uh, and uh, and negative. I find a very very hopeful film as well. And I, I think it's telling that that he he dismantles Hal, and and then he goes on his journey, and he reaches a a higher level of he evolves into a higher level of consciousness in a way. And I'm wondering how this speaks to certain themes that obsess Kubrick throughout his career, because he there seems to be a common thread of a general distrust of of power in his films. Uh, and 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 perhaps that translates into a into a distrust of technology in 2001, as if he's saying, yes, we're we're very evolved. Look at the amazing technology and the amazing intellect that went into creating it, but at what cost if it strips us of our humanity? I mean, do you see that in 2001? I, I think that's very difficult because uh, if you look at the production process itself, there's a lot of um, discussion going on about how one might explain Hal's behavior. And also, I think there's a lot of attempts to try to understand the astronaut. I think it's actually misleading to think about the astronaut as being somehow deadened or anything like that. Mm. Um, I think there's something about what it might mean to survive 
in space, you know, for months on end with one other person in fairly limited space, you know, surely you would have to have your, your emotions under absolute control in order to survive in that kind of environment. Uh, and there's a wonderfully uh, expressive moment in the film when uh, uh, David Bowman wants to get you back into the ship and Hal denies him entry. And David Bowman is really upset. You you can see it, but he has to keep it all in. So so I think there's something extraordinarily emotional about the characters in the film. And as far as technology itself is concerned, since the monolith needs to be understood, if it's not you know divine intervention, it needs to be understood as a technology. Mm. So if there's any hope at all, uh, it is technology. So for me, there isn't an opposition between humanity and technology, but rather there is a question of what kind of technology and what do we do with it and to what purpose do we use it. And the question ultimately is, of course, uh, how does... I mean, for me, the ending of the film is quite extraordinary in the contrast to the uh, first appearance of the monolith and how it inspires Moonwatcher, the, the, the man-ape, the hominid, who, who discovers the use of bones as tools and in particular as weapons. Uh-huh. Uh, that's a very powerful moment where, where the ambiguity of human, human progress, of course, is brought into focus that, yes, the, to- the use of tools, the sophisticated use of tools distinguishes humans from uh, other animals, but at the same time, of course, it is, in the film at least, immediately used to murder. Mm-hmm. It's a Cain, Cain and Abel type situation. Um, so it's, there's a huge tension there between uh, tools as something which elevates humanity and tools which are used for murderous purposes. And the end of the film, of course, when Thus Spake Zarathustra, the, the music played over this, this crucial moment when, when man apes become human, as it were, through the discovery of tools and through the discovery of murder, uh, when they become human, uh, the contrast at the end of the film, when the music returns, is that now the, the, the monolith facilitates a return home. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. thought that, that was, for me, the most touching moment in the whole film. Once I thought about it, I mean, I've seen the film 20 times, and you know, you see something else every time you watch it. But for me, it was quite touching to say that at the end, this triumphant music is, is not about elevating uh, people, it's not about murder, it's not about tools. It's about returning home. Mm. Uh, so the star child at the end of the film returns to Earth, and then, of course, turns towards the camera and returns to us in the auditorium. Um, so loneliness, human loneliness is overcome. We are there for each other, as it were. That seems to me is quite crucial in, in this particular film. So I wouldn't say it is, it is about distrust of technology. Uh, there's a certain basic humaneness uh, in the way Kubrick constructs the story uh, of 2001, at least. And I think you can find that in other films as well. You can find in other films these moments of simple human togetherness, uh, which which uh, are absolutely crucial. I mean, the most famous example in some ways would be uh, um, the scene with the soldiers uh, at the end of Paths of Glory, right. where a German, young German woman who happens to be Kubrick's future wife, uh, a captured woman of the enemy, is put on display in front of uh, these soldiers. And we've seen all these, these terrible things that happen, not only in the trenches, but the army itself, the French army in this particular case, how it treats its own soldiers. We have seen all this horror. Uh, and then we see this, this, this exposed, vulnerable young woman on the stage being mocked and, and also being implicitly threatened. Uh, and then she sings this song, 
and she touches the hearts of these soldiers. So for me, these moments of togetherness, and of course, I may not be able to repeat the exact line here, but the very final scene in Kubik's oeuvre as a whole, in uh, in White right. Chart, right. when uh, you know the question is, what do we do now? What does the couple do after they've all done, after they've gone through all these uh, uh, dramatic adventures of these two nights, these these dreams and these fantasies and these anxieties uh, and the the, the the urban odyssey? Uh, what do they do after all this? Well, go home and make love. Right. So, so the, the, the whole oeuvre of Cubic ends on this idea that human togetherness uh, is, you know, that we always have each other, and that is absolutely crucial. So it seems to me that that is, I mean, this sounds a bit, you know, uh, uh, almost too soft for Kubrick, but, but I think if you look at it across a lot of his films, even the ending of Clockwork Orange, the, the, the very final um, fantasy that, that Alex has at the end of uh, Clockwork Orange, it's usually described as a rape scene which is very co- confusing. Uh, even in the production process, it was called a rape scene. But when you look at the scene, the fantasy, uh, it seems to be two two people who seem to enjoy each other's sexual right. encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the woman is not being raped. She's on top. She seems to be enjoying herself. And then there are some people standing around clapping, which is a bit mysterious. Um, but even that moment at the end of uh, um, Clockwork Orange, I think is a moment of human togetherness. In this particular case, as in Eyes Wide Shut, sexual togetherness. But it seems to me those are themes running through a lot of Kubrick's work um, that that are absolutely crucial. And I think that that people might miss uh, his his optimism in some of these films because, unlike a lot of filmmakers, he doesn't impose upon you how you should feel about a certain character. He like in Clark or Corinth, he allows Alex. Uh, obviously, he's he's a murderous thug, but he's never as alive as when he's living in his id in in a way. Uh, he does despicable things, but yet he's deeply moved by uh, Beethoven. You know, and it's that duality of man uh, concept that he's dealing with a lot in his work too. And I think that that makes his reading his work not easy for a lot of people because so much of the work is not done for them in that way. Yeah, I certainly think that ties in with what I mentioned earlier, that, that one of the ways in which Kubrick explains some of his films is to say, I don't want to give answers, I want to pose questions. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those questions have to do with you know what he explicitly called the duality of man, in a line from Full Metal Jacket, mm. you know, when when the soldier is asked, the Joker is asked, you know, uh, w- w- what's the meaning of having, you know, a peace sign and going to kill written on your helmet? What's that all about? And uh, as the Joker answers, well, it's it, it's the duality of man, the the yin yang thing, I think he says. Right. What does he say? The Jungian thing, the Jungian thing, I think he says. Uh, but he does say he explicitly says the, the duality of man. And uh, so I think you're absolutely right that uh, uh, Kubik doesn't see uh, his characters as... But but I, I would be cautious whether the rest of popular cinema is actually as single-minded as some people think it is. I would be slightly cautious. But nevertheless, it's absolutely clear that Kubik pushes different aspects of uh, human character, as it were, in the same person. 
and and is willing to explore the contradictions between them. And you're absolutely right that with Alex in in Clockwork Orange, that's the most uncomfortable encounter mm-hmm. uh, that we can have with a character, because if the film really works, we should. And that's, a lot of critics don't say that. A lot of critics seem to say that in some ways what what Alex does is almost excusable because at least he's alive. I would say that makes me very uncomfortable. If that was, you know, the intention, and uh, from my research so far, I would certainly think that's not the intention. The intention is to remind us that we've got Alex's brutality in us as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we should do, of course, is to address that brutality, not to celebrate it. Um, that would be my response to the film. Uh, as far as, I mean, I haven't written up all my results of my research yet, so this is still very much in flux. Um, but I would certainly say that Kubrick, especially in Clockwork Orange, wanted to confront the audience with its own uh, potential for extreme brutality and extreme carelessness with regards to uh, uh, other people's well-being, uh, but that wasn't meant to be celebrated. That was meant to make the audience extremely uncomfortable with themselves. I think. So, what would you say? So, what would you say his thought would be on on how, on how to deal with that side of our nature? Because he's he's obviously saying that it, it the greater sin would be to su- suppress it altogether, as as the government attempts to do in the film. Yeah, that's an ongoing... Uh, I have to reread a lot of his interviews again uh, because, you know, that's what the Burgess, who seemed to be religiously motivated, said about his novel. And uh, Kubik seemed to go along with that. He seemed to go along with this idea that certain kinds of state intervention are as evil, as it were, or even more evil than this behavior of individuals. And that's certainly something I I haven't quite worked out yet, what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one has to read a lot about uh, debates about violence, both state violence and individual individual violence in the 60s. Uh, there is actually quite a bit of writing about Kubrick's uh, engagement with the uh, writer Robert Ardry, uh, who wrote about human nature. And he wasn't a scientist, but he, he used... Uh, the writings of scientists to 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 reflect on human nature and, and the place of violence in human nature and all of that. Mm-hmm. And Kubik certainly talked about uh, that social systems uh, are not uh, built on distorting an innocent uh, humanity into a brutal murderers. You know, there are some people made the argument that uh, you know since Rousseau, I guess. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, some people made the argument that humanity, each individual is innocent when born, and then is distorted into something potentially evil by society. Right. And Kubik certainly said that he disagreed with this, and that he saw it the other way around, that the society was, was shaped by the, the, the potential for violence and the, the violent impulses that each human being brought into society. Mm. And that society could not help but reflect that aspect of human nature, as it were. But he didn't see that cynically or defeat, in a defeatist way. He thought that once you acknowledge that, you can deal with it. Mm-hmm. So his idea was not that we can excuse state violence. And let's not forget that Kubrick was Jewish. 
and that cubic was uh, um, more or less directly. I mean, there's an interesting book by Jeffrey Cox, which is very extreme in this art. Wolf at the door, but yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, but it makes uh, a case, at least intermittently, that Kubrick certainly was interested in the Holocaust as a key moment in 20th century history, um, and that his Jewishness had something to do with that, and that he felt uh, personally invested. And let's not forget that he injects a Nazi into the nuclear scenario in Dr. Strange Love. Uh-huh. Um, and in some of the material that leads up to the final version of Dr. Strange Love, uh, the Holocaust is explicitly mentioned. Some of the script material and the novelization of the film, not the source novel, but the novelization of the film, actually explicitly reference the Holocaust. So Kubik certainly was not wanting to excuse state violence by saying, oh, it's human nature, what do you expect? Individuals are potentially very violent. They bring this to the formation of a society. The society you know, will have some form of government which will be uh, uh, violent uh, as you know, the individuals are as well. And therefore, what can you do about it? Mm. Certainly that, I wouldn't think, is in any way uh, reflective of what Kubrick was thinking about. Uh, his intention, as far as I can see, was to to show how brutal um, organizations can be, whether it's the army and Paths of Glory and Full Metal Jacket, uh, or whether it's the, the nuclear establishment and government in, in, in Dr. Strangelove, uh, or whether it's a, a gang of youth and the sort of uh, authoritarian government in, in, in Clockwork Orange. He certainly was interested in how uh, groups of people organizing themselves at, at whatever level, uh, you know, whether it's four people or a whole nation or the whole world in some ways in, in Dr. Strange Love. It's the whole world that buys into an extraordinary destructive system. He certainly was interested in exploring that. Yeah. But I think the idea is once you have explored it, you might be able to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So human nature is not something that is fate, uh, that, 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 that determines our fate. Human nature does not determine our fate or the fate of our societies. But once we acknowledge certain aspects of human nature, we can then deal with it in a humane way, as it were, yeah. at the level of individuals and at the level of, of groups or states or the world as a whole. I think that was his intention, but he did certainly have a belief in the basic brutality of each individual human being. And that's something I'm, you know, I happen to disagree with, um, because there's uh, literature that has emerged since the 60s from anthropologists, biologists, psychologists, which seems to suggest something else altogether, uh, that human nature, humans are, are programmed to actually want to need each other, want to be there for each other, want to help each other, and that they're not programmed to be violent towards each other um, by, you know, by their genes, as it were, or by, by biological evolution. So uh, I think Kubrick started out from a premise I, I personally don't share, this idea that human nature is violent. I personally don't share that premise. But the conclusion he draws from it, has, I can totally agree with, because they have to do with a basic humane engagement with whatever our impulses might be and whatever our organizational structures might be. And also, as I said, it's always a return to a basic human togetherness, which I think is celebrated mm-hmm. at the end of a lot of his films. That, that that after all is said and done, uh, humans need each other, and there's a lot of uh, hope and comfort in this. I'm, um, I'm so glad. Not only to... I'm, I'm so very glad that uh, that you're talking about these concepts uh, because 
a lot of the interviews with various analysts and critics and collaborators of Mr. Kubrick that we've done, uh, it, it reads pretty pretty much across the board as very pessimistic. And uh, you know, one, one even went so far as to say that uh, the ending of the killing, uh, when the when the Sterling Hayden character says something like, "What's the use?" Uh, when he can't get a cab, can't escape from. <laughs> from the botched heist, uh, their point was that's essentially what Kubrick said about humanity it, 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 throughout his entire career. So I, I'm so thankful to get a to get that opposite viewpoint out there, that the the, the positive viewpoint that you're that you're sharing. I mean, uh, as I said, if you reread some of the interviews, you you will find amazingly level-headed and and sensible and forward-looking and positive things in them. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that I think it's, for me, it's also the emotional resonance of a lot of scenes in its films. So obviously that's an interpretive act on my part. You know, I'm, I'm looking at my own response and I'm, I'm, you know, generalizing from that about the films and, and what the films might be able to mean for lots of other people. But I think if you reread some of the interviews, you, you, you would see that there is a, uh, in a sense, yes, there is a pessimism about the way things are, but I think there's a very strong, either explicit or at least implied optimism about how things could be different. Uh-huh. I think that's very important. It's the idea, and then of never, never more than at the ending of 2001, of course. Uh, but as I said, it is very curious that at the very end of, uh, he didn't know it would be his last film, but the, the way that the, the ending of Eyes Wide Shut turns around. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's expressed rather crudely, uh, which which one is quite shocked by, and that's I won't repeat the phrase here, but uh, <laughs> it is extraordinary how it ends up on Let's Make Love. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it it does seem like a very career. a very fitting ending of a career. Yeah, that last yeah. scene. Um, and I also think that yeah, sorry, go on. Oh no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, we're we're about to run out of recording time, so I just wanted to. Real quick, before I let you go, I, I wanted to know about this archive because you've you've consulted the archive uh, many times, I'm sure, in in your mm. your research for your works. What is that? Uh, what is that like? What kind of jewels have you uncovered there? I mean, the it's it's Kubrick's personal collection, which was you know at his house near London for for decades, and uh, the family eventually gave it to the University of the Arts London. Um, near the Elephant and Castle uh, in, in London, and uh, it is uh, all of his materials that he collected over decades. Now, it's not complete. There are certain things which, for legal reasons, aren't in there. There are certain things, I think, that the family felt shouldn't be in there. Um, there was a long process of transferring not only the, the, the material relating to the films that were made, but also relating to the films that were not made into the archive, and that process is still ongoing, and the Richard Daniels, the archivist, the cubic archivist at this uh, archive, is, has been immensely helpful, not only to me, but to a whole new group of young scholars, mostly, who, who are exploring cubic in a completely new way, because uh, a lot of the existing literature on cubic has avoided dealing with archival issues. Uh, uh, now, admittedly, the Cubic Archive only has been made public for the last three years or so, but there have been other archival resources that Cubic critics could have used but didn't, uh, except for very few exceptions, most notably Vincent Labrutto, who wrote the absolutely outstanding, in my view, absolutely outstanding biography of Cubic. He's yeah, wonderful. Fantastic yeah. piece of work. Yeah. Um, 
But, you know, cubic critics, by and large, have not been making use of the ar- or any kind of archival resources. And now there's a new generation of people who are going to the cubic archive. And uh, in, in a sense, your question is quite interesting because a lot of archival research is not based on sm- what I call the smoking gun memo. Mm-hmm. You know, where cubic says, I intend the monolith <laughs> to be like a widescreen stood up and turned black so that the monolith represents the screen on which the film is projected. You know, that's one of my uh, attempts at, at making sense of the monolith. And of course, you know, if I had found that memo in which Kubik says this, you know, then I would have said, yes, I was right. But of course, that's not what archival research is mostly about. It's mm-hmm. not about the individual treasure. It's about going through hundreds, if not thousands of pages of material and piecing together uh, a story. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's exciting about the archive. It's not the individual element. It's, it's with sustained effort of looking at lots of memos that he writes to Arthur C. Clarke, lots of script versions, you know, lots of different attempts to tell the same story or, or sometimes to tell a totally different story altogether during the same project. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot of, you know, information on, on bills and, you know, what was shot on one, uh, on what day. It's a lot of communication having to do with the marketing of films, different attempts at drafting uh, the, the, the image to be used in advertisements and posters. You know, it, it's endless material that you can find. But I would say, I would not uh, encourage people to think there's the smoking gun mm-hmm. that you find that explains everything. That is not the nature of the archive. And it's not the nature of any archive, to be honest. Um, and it's certainly not... I almost suspect that if Kubik had a smoking gun a memo, if he had written it, that he probably would have destroyed it afterwards. I think so, too, yeah. So uh, so I think the, the, the archive is, is... It's almost like watching a Kubik film. You don't expect a single simple answer. Uh, what you expect is questions that are raised by the film and that you want to engage with, you want to watch it again. So I would suggest the archive is there for looking into it, going there, and they're very, very hospitable. Uh, they're very open to the public, uh, for fans even, you know, who are in London. You, one can just make an appointment and either get a tour and a display of, of uh, items from the archive, or one can do research oneself. But the idea is not to, in a sense, find the key to Kubrick's work, but to understand the process. Yes. You know, what we've been talking about today, uh, the process of how he worked can be reconstructed by immersing oneself in the extensive documentation contained in the archive, not for all films, but for most films. Uh, and it's that process, to be part of that process, I think, that's the joy of, of doing archival research. Because one, one almost becomes retrospectively a member of the team, you know, who put the film together. Right. If one immerses oneself in the paper trail of that work. Thank you.